1: Welcome back. I guess welcome back from yesterday. I'm just starting the show, but I'm Marcus Farrow. Uh, Chris will be back next week, um, but we've got a great guest to start the show. Uh, He was on the program a few times uh, as a candidate for state auditor, and now he's here in his capacity as an art theft and security expert, Anthony Amore. Hey, Anthony, how are you?
2: Hi, Marcus. How are you?
1: Good. So, um, before we get started, obviously there was—you know—you were a candidate for state auditor. I think generally seen as the most qualified Republican candidate and the one with the best chance of of uh, of winning a statewide office in in twenty twenty two. It didn't go the way you wanted it to. I didn't know if you had any reactions or thoughts uh, on that uh, on that race. Uh, well, I'm
2: uh, obviously disappointed to not have. Um, been elected as auditor. I, I believe I could have uh, put together a team that would have done really great things there, but um, that's government. It's uh, it's not a meritocracy. Um, I don't mean that as an insult to the person that won. I just I just felt that I was better qualified, but um, I hope uh, the best for her. I, I, I called her an election night and wished her the best, and um, and I'm hopeful that she will fulfill her promises in terms of uh, doing an audit of the agency itself. I haven't heard anything about that since um, uh, the election ended, and I didn't hear anything about that uh, in her um, when she was sworn in. But I remain hopeful uh, that office is key to um, good performance from state agencies in the Commonwealth, and we need that. and uh, I hope she I hope she succeeds.
1: We're speaking with Anthony Amore. He's an art, theft, and security expert. I don't know if you had any comments on the uh, the ongoing uh, turmoil in the mass GOP either. I figured I'd ask since you're on here. Howie Carr, our uh, affiliate's been covering it. Jess Machado's been covering it quite a bit. I don't know if you had any comments or thoughts on that either.
2: Well, I think that Howie and Jess uh, have been both doing a fantastic job. I, I think that the party is in disaster shape. There's No, I I can't imagine anybody can argue that. I mean, it's dwindling membership, uh, non-existent funds, probably deeply in the red, um, uh, massive divisions. And um, I have to say tonight I saw on Holly Carr's uh, Twitter feed that the chairman of the party apparently paid a private detective to look into um, two state committee members, including yeah. one who's a friend of mine, I should be clear, Matt, Matthew Sis, who's a good man. And, um, he paid a private detective to look into the guy's first marriage, which is really, I'm gonna, I'm speaking to myself here, incredibly sleazy. Yeah. And I can't imagine how a state party chair thinks that's his role to look into members of his own party's first marriages. Um, I can't think of anything lower. I can't imagine an argument for reelecting him. Um, and I, am strongly supporting Amy Carnavali.
1: So, um, uh, we're speaking with Anthony Amore. So we're here to talk about your, your, your professional experience and your, um, you know, your work, uh, as an art theft, uh, investigator. You are the, just for, for background for people who may not have heard you during the campaign. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Well, uh, Back in 2005, I left the federal government where I had been an investigator to, uh, and a security um, uh, leader with Homeland Security to go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and do the security there. And as many of your listeners know, uh, it's the place uh, where the biggest art heist in history occurred. So 17 years ago, I started um, diving into the world of art crime uh, really deeply, and I continue to 17 years later. Um, I teach art crime at Harvard in the evening, uh, um, starting Monday, in fact. Oh, cool. uh, And um, I've written uh, three books on the topic, and it's just something I'm um, passionate about. And uh, um, I wrote something for The Globe recently about Brian Walsh and uh, his origins as an art criminal, um, which is uh, an interesting topic.
1: So, yeah, you uh, you have written uh, several books uh, on the matter. You have a best-selling book, "The Art of the Con," um, and uh, about that Globe piece, it was really interesting. Prompted me to reach out to you actually about Brian Walsh. So. Brian Walsh, as many know, is a suspect. is under is being charged with the murder of his wife, Anna Walsh. Uh, he is a he lived. Uh, they lived in uh, Cohasset, uh, which is in the South Shore of Massachusetts. Uh, it is a case that's gotten some national attention. Um, a lot has been uh, said about Brian Walsh. Uh, you know, we know about the Googles of his. You know, how to. You know, when does a body start to smell, and all of those horrifying searches he's done. But prior to um, his murder charge, he had dabbled in a brief career in art fraud and you had brought up that brian walsh had particular he was selling fake andy uh, andy warhol paintings and you had talked about how art fraud isn't necessarily about the work it's more about the personality of the per uh, the the individual that's perpetuating the art fraud can you tell us a little bit about that
2: sure and and first marcus thank you for reading it you summed it up really eloquently i think that um You mentioned my second book, The Art of the Con, and that's the the pertinent book related to this topic because that book dealt with art fraud and art forgeries and how they're done. And what I argue in that book and what I believe is that when you have these forgery um, scams that take place and and they range in value, but they they escalate into the tens of millions of dollars, the, the essential element to a successful scam is not in the quality of the art. So it's not about how great the painter is who made the forgery. It's about the, um, the ego, the gumption, the, um, the nerve of the con man behind it, because it's not usually the same person. Uh, it's usually a con man who has some make copies for him because he has this bold idea that he could pull the wool over somebody's eyes, and to some extent they succeed, at least initially, um, but the overriding factor, what really fascinates me as it pertains to the Walsh case, is that he was really sloppy, and his forgeries were haphazard and easily discern, uh, discernible as fakes. And when I, I saw the you know, the, um, court, appa- the uh, court hearing uh, two days ago, I think it was, and you hear about the Google searches and the blood evidence and the blood in the basement, et etc. You can't help but notice the similarity between the, the sloppy, um, haphazard approach to crime. Now, let me be clear. Um, although he hasn't been convicted of anything yet, he's an alleged murderer. I'm, it seems to me that he's guilty, in my opinion. Yeah. And I'm glad that he made so many mistakes so that he could be brought to justice. Um, nevertheless, it's not hard to look at a correlation between his approach to these crimes. I think they're tied to this sociopathic ego that he has.
1: We're speaking with uh, Anthony Morris, an uh, art theft and security expert, as the head of security at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Andy Warhol, a very well-known well artist, in uh, like the 60s and 70s, his most one of his most famous works was the uh, Campbell's Soup Can uh, painting that I think a lot of people will uh, remember and immediately recognize. Uh, how did he perpetuate the fraud of uh, selling those um, uh, fake Andy Warhol paintings?
2: Well, it's interesting. Um you know what I, I write about these frauds. Most of the time, the art that's used is more modern art, uh, abstract expressionism or impressionism, um, because they're somewhat easier to copy than, say, a Rembrandt or a Vermeer. Um, what he did was—it's really um, a real insight into his into his psyche. He, when he was a freshman in college at Carnegie Mellon College in Pittsburgh, he. Um, he became friends with a, a man from, uh, a young man from South Korea. Um, Walsh only spent one year at Carnegie Mellon, but afterwards state remained friends with this South Korean person and visited him frequently. In 2011, when he was visiting his friend, he went with his friend and his family to, um, they, bought, they bought some art. They bought ultimately bought three Warhols and um, a couple of works by Keith Herring. He's that artist that makes those funky graffiti-looking uh, dancing stick figure type okay. pieces. And in any event Walsh, who um, you know, his—if you look at his career, if you read his resume, it's pretty vague because he's never really held a job. Yeah. He just gives himself these lofty titles of consultant and at one time art dealer. Um, anyone can call himself an art dealer. Okay, I've sent, I've sold a couple of pieces of art on uh, on the internet. I'm not an art dealer. I'm someone who sold a couple of pieces of art. Anyway, he convinced his friend, his friend trusted him, uh, that he could sell these pieces for him and then immediately went about trying to scam his friend. He had no intention of really trying to sell these. And he sought uh, two different people who made forgeries of these two Warhol pieces called Shadows and, um, and sold them on eBay using Anna's account um, to a person in California, and when the person ultimately received these pieces in California, he saw immediately that these were not
1: what they were purported to be. So, um, you know, it, the person to whom they sold the paintings, I think, uh, uh, echoed a lot of the similar sentiments about uh, his personality and how his personality was able to, um, you know, move that move that transaction forward. You talked um, a little bit about this is because he had. Basically, Brian Walsh had, had this. Um, he does have this very like scofflaw type of like uh, it reminds me of Leonardo and Catch Me If You Can uh, type of lifestyle. Um, but he he um, he he was uh, sort of obsessed with um, living lavishly, uh, and it it, it it sort of drove his multiple careers and scams throughout his lifetime.
2: Yep, and um, you, you hit a key point. His desire to, you know, it's essentially, I don't want to say get rich quick scheme because you have to do a lot of these to get rich. But everything he did in his life, it seems like, was some sort of scam to live lavishly to, uh, you know, with the, without having to make any effort. So you read um, in the Boston Globe, for instance, that he borrowed a half a million dollars from a friend and just simply never paid it back. Or right he um, pilfered his, uh, his father's estate by um, destroying the will to which he had been um, excluded. So, and that was over a million dollars and he was excluded from the will because he had, I believe, taken a half a million dollars from his father without it, just simply stopped talking to his father after mm-hmm. getting the money. So he had no intention of doing actual work to make this sort of money. But I, and I think it it's a peek into his psyche because I think he appears to be the sort of person who believes he was owed it, who believes he had it coming. Who's um, I described him in the Globe piece as having a Superman complex and thinking, you know, this—he's entitled to these things because he's better. And it's that sort of self-worship, this idea that you're so intelligent and um, superior, that leads you to to commit sloppy crimes believing people can't possibly catch me because I'm so um, superior to repeat the phrase and the word. And um, we saw that in his first court appearance when he was in there. He seemed sort of cocky and sort of had a swagger to him and, right. and saw him grinning when he left the courthouse. Uh, this, I think most people would agree with my
1: assessment. So you compared him uh, to um, another art fraudster in the early 2000s, uh, Wolfgang Bellatracci, um, which I thought was you know a really interesting story. Can you tell us more about uh, Mr. Bellatraci and and uh, how he perpetuated his fraud and the, the parallels? Well,
2: well, his last name is Beltracci, his okay. Wolfgang, and his wife Helene, and it's really an unbelievable story, and it's a it really uh, illustrates what I was saying about this. It's not about the quality of the art. So, Wolfgang could paint. He, he's a talented painter. He's not a world class master, um, and he was an unsuccessful artist. But he got this idea that he would he would dream up paintings that were that that were in the style of certain um, impressionist artists, and uh, he would he would imagine what they might have painted but did not, and he would do his best to try to get. Um, Uh, canvases from the period and stretchers and um, tried to use the right pigments and such to make these copies. And he did, and he made dozens of them. And what he did was uh, he and his wife, his wife Helene, came up with a story. So to sell these paintings, you need a backstory, because like anyone else, if if I came to you, Marcus, and I said, hey, I have this painting, um, and it's worth $12 million and you were interested in it, you'd want to know, like, well, Do you have title to this, and what's its history, and how do I know it's authentic? Because the artist is dead. So he had to go up with a backstory, and it was ingenious. He um, he and his wife came up with this tale that these paintings were what the Nazis considered degenerate art. And that's true. The Nazis would look at a lot of modernist art and deem it degenerate and take it and destroy it. So he took these paintings. They all fell into that classification, not the copies, but the fakes he made and um his wife and he brought them forward saying these were from my wife's grandfather's collection he saved them he smuggled them out of nazi germany and um they called them um uh, the, the flecktime collection because flecktime was an actual art gallery owner who was victimized by the nazis so if you were a dealer and he comes to you with these paintings you give this provenance you say well my wife's grandfather was Werner Jaegers, and he took these out of Nazi Germany. Dealers want more than that, so Wolfgang would make fake labels and put them on the back of paintings. He even had his wife dress up as her own grandmother, pose as her grandmother. Wow. In photographs with these paintings, and he would take the photos with a period camera. cameras. He'd go to antique stores and find the old cameras from uh, World War II or before and developing paper And he would make what looked like old photos, and and people bought into it. And he sold tens of millions of dollars' worth of these. But ultimately, somebody brought one of their paintings to a um, scientist uh, who knows how to examine paintings. And they found that, first of all, there was a pigment used. um, I think it was titanium white that um, was not available at the time. Right. It was supposedly And um, they also found, I I interviewed the scientists, and they told me, no, it was very easy to discern that these were fakes. I mean, we just had to look at the canvas and the supporting wood and such. So they they weren't ingenious. They weren't, um, it was an ingenious idea in the nerve to bring these forward, right? Marcus, you or I might come up with a clever scam like this, but we wouldn't go through with it. That would be ridiculous, you know, but he did.
1: So we're speaking with Anthony Moore. He's an art death, and security expert. We're talking about Brian Walsh, the suspected murderer uh, um, up in uh, Cohasset of his wife Anna Walsh, and his brief career uh, in in art fraud. So um, you talked about some of the uh, easily identifiable markers for uh, a painting that is a fake, and you said this guy's a wasn't a capable but not super talented painter. What are some of the you know uh, What are some of the what are some of the that people look at when they are trying to identify fakes, and is it possible for um, people to pull off, you know, uh, a fake that's intricate enough that it could pass for a Warhol or uh, somebody like that?
2: Yes. So, in in the Brian Walsh case, it was it's interesting. So he had the real Warhols, and and to prove that the ones that he had from that belonged to his South Korean friend, to prove that these were real, these had the stamps. Um, from the Warhol Foundation on the back, and they were numbered by the foundation. So that's relatively rare. Yeah. So uh, I hope this isn't too confusing, but because there are so many issues about fakes and what's real and what is not, uh, a lot of times, like say the Warhol Foundation would authenticate paintings and they'd put a stamp on them. And that's a great imprimatur of something being real and your ability to sell it, right? It, that's a good bona fide. In 2012, the Wahoe Foundation stopped doing stamping because they were sued by a person that they refused to um, authenticate. They said they didn't believe it was real, and that man sued them, and it wound up costing the foundation around eight, 7 or $8 million. Wow. And they said, it's not worth it to us anymore. So they don't do this anymore. The paintings that Walsh had were stamped. So that's a great value for these things. And he advertised them on eBay as stamped. When the ones he sent, the fakes that he had um, two people make for him, when he sent them to California, they had no stamps or markings on the back. So he advertised them this way on eBay. The person who bought them knew there were, there were supposed to be stamps and markings, right? and what he sent had none. I mean, it would be impossible for him to get away with this, but he did it anyway because of his own hubris. <sighs>
1: We're speaking with Anthony Amore, art uh, theft and security, art uh, theft and security expert. So, um, you, you know, you're head of the security at Isabella Stewart Gardner. Um, is there ever a situation in which? Uh, I know that Isabella Stewart Gardner is a very specific museum um, uh, with uh, very specific uh, parameters and what art is and isn't there. And it's basically everything that's there belongs there except for the stuff that was stolen and nothing new comes in. But do you ever, um, you know, during your during your career, have you ever um, been, you know, consulted to, uh, you know, investigate uh, certain art frauds um, yeah. in the Boston yeah. area?
2: I have, and um, you, you, you uh, spoke about the Godwin perfectly. We don't we don't add to our collection, so we don't have an issue about acquiring art that might be fraudulent. Um, but I, I did I did do work um, outside the museum on a case where, a, as a non disclosure agreement involves, I can't talk about the artist or the people, obviously. Sure. But what essentially was was the, uh, a person spent around thirteen million dollars on some paintings that were attributed to a world-famous abstract artist and um, started having doubts about the paintings. And what's incredible, it sort of proves my point about uh, what I said in the book, is that I never saw the paintings in person. I didn't examine the paintings. I didn't bring them to a scientist or a technician. I just saw photos of them. All I was really interested in was the backstory, the provenance of these paintings. Where did they come from? What did the person who sold them to you tell you about how they got them? And I investigated that story and found it was horribly false. Um, and that's all it took to prove that the provenance of these paintings um, was faked. And um, uh, it was a gratifying case to be able to help the person, but it, um, they didn't want to Prosecute because of the embarrassment that would be involved, and that's pretty common, believe it or not. Um, so they, uh, I, the last that I had heard, they were going to seek getting their money back, but that's a, that's a struggle in dealing with con men. So um, yeah, again, it comes down to the, the story, the backstory. If you if you can dig into the provenance, you don't even have to dig into the actual physical painting.
1: So you're saying it's difficult for even if there is cases of obvious fraud it's difficult for people to recoup their losses?
2: No, I don't think it's difficult too, but there are there there was one art the thing is you you open yourself up to huge embarrassment if you go in a civil suit. So it has yeah. to be it has to be worth it to you. So there was one art forgery scam a guy out of um out of New York who what he would do is he would buy the actual painting and then have people make copies of the painting. And he would sell the copies. So if you check out the painting, you say, hey, this guy, his name was, um, what was his last name? His first name was Ellie. I'm sorry, I can't remember his last name. But what he would, people, if you looked it up, you'd say, yeah, he's the rightful owner, so this must be his his painting I'm buying. But he would sell it four or five times because he had a bunch of copies. And he would sell them to um, investors in Japan and in Taiwan because in both cultures, the embarrassment of having been taken outweighed the, the desire for justice, so those people would not go to the authorities about him, and he got away with it for quite some time because they would just eat the loss because the humiliation would not right. have been worth it to them in their culture.
1: So you spoke um, in your uh, in your Boston Globe uh, column about uh, I'm going to go by his um, pseudonym because I don't want to I don't want to butcher his name, but Clark Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Um, a famous murderer and kidnapper. Can you tell us a little bit about him,
2: Christian Streiter. Yeah, he, uh, you know, that's that's really an, an amazing story. If you remember, uh, this immigrant from Germany who um, integrated himself into America. He came here um, as a student, and he was in California and. Um, I can't remember the alias he was using. in He might have just been using that name. I don't recall. Sure. But while he was in California, someone found him out as being a fraudster, and he wound up murdering at least one person, the wife of the person he was proven to have murdered. Her body was never found, and they never prosecuted him for her, her death or her disappearance, quote-unquote. He then moved, um, but he, he wasn't prosecuted until later. So then he wound up moving to Boston, ultimately, and um, assumed the identity Clark Rockefeller and put on this act that he was a member of the Rockefeller family and passed into polite society in, I think it was the Commonwealth Club he was a member of in Boston. And um, you know, he wound up marrying a, a wealthy businesswoman, having a daughter with her, um, and then slowly but surely being found out as a fraud and um, kidnapped his daughter. And there was a national manhunt on for him for, for some time. But this all happened out of Boston. And um, he, the reason I brought him up is because he, too, wanted to portray himself as part of the well-to-do class. So he had fake paintings, um, uh, Rothko's and such, which are worth tens of millions of dollars, in his apartment. And he would show these things off as if they were real. And um, it just shows you that there's a, these people who have this vision of Granger understand that high art is a key to establishing themselves.
1: So we're speaking with Anthony Amore. Um, so, Anthony, um, uh, we talked, I touched a little bit on the Isabella Stewart Gardner. I haven't been there since my, you know, an art history class I took in college, but it was a fascinating place. I hope to go back again sometime soon. But, um... Can you tell us a little bit about that history? Because it is really it is really interesting. You know, you're, you're the head of security there. So can you tell us a little bit about that history? About I'm sorry about the Marcus. Ab- well, about about Isabel Stewart Gardner, the 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 well, museum that you work at.
2: You know, as, this is why I love talking to you on the show, Marcus, because you you avoid the obvious, boring questions, and, <laughs> and I, I'm so glad you asked about Mrs. Gardner instead of the missing arch. Miss Isabel Stewart Gardner was. Um, from a wealthy family in New York, and moved to Boston and married Jack Gardner, who was from the North Shore essentially, and he was even wealthier. and uh, and, and that's who married each other back in the nineteenth century. And um, she was a collector of books initially, and began collecting art. She had a, a home on Beacon Hill, and if you see photos of her home, um, you could see some of the great paintings that ultimately went over to the Gardner Museum because Mrs. Gardner. Um, decided uh, that the country needed a great museum, mm-hmm. and she went about building it, and she started building what is now the, uh, what she called then Fenway Court um, on the Fenway. It was the only thing there. It's really amazing to look at pictures uh, from when it was built, because there's no Simmons College. There's no Mass Art. There's no Wentworth. It's not surrounded um, as it is now. And she... Populated it with some of, with arguably one of the world's greatest collections. And what makes it really interesting to me is that it's not a huge collection. So, for instance, we have four Rembrandts. Well, a lot of museums have many more, including the MFA. But the ones that she had um, or has in our museum are really special works, right? So, she Rembrandt, to our knowledge, only painted one seascape. So she had that. And there's this really important self-portrait of Rembrandt that he painted when he was a young man, just as he's being discovered. And she has that. And that's what her collection is marked by. So she had um, America's first Raphael, the first Matisse, uh, the first Botticelli, and so on. Um, And so that's really what makes going to her museum so special. And on top of that, the Garden the Museum, for those who haven't been, it's not an encyclopedic museum. It's not just paintings on white walls. It's every piece in the gallery, the wall coverings, the floors, the ceiling, they're part of the collection. Yeah. Um, and they're all authentic. These are things that she brought over as relics and as um, pieces of art and turned into this um, palace, this masterpiece of a building.
1: And the conditions of um, basically leaving that um, museum uh, t- uh, for the people is that Uh, You can't, uh, the collection has to be as is. Nothing new can come in, nothing can go out either.
2: Well, you're an attorney, so I'm not surprised you would ask about her will. Her her will does say that the collection has to remain as she left it. So, you know, everybody who's been there knows where, um, say, uh, um, John Singer Sargent's portrait of her in the fourth floor is. Yeah. We can't take that and move it to another corner in that room or to another gallery. Uh, if we do, that's a violation of the will. We can't uh, get a phone call from the, from the Louvre and, and hear that they want to give us the Mona Lisa. We have to put it in the Dutch room. Right. We can't take it um, right. because nothing can be added to the collection or subtracted from it um, by the museum. And if we did, the, the entire collection would have to be auctioned off and all the proceeds would go to Harvard.
1: We're speaking with Anthony Amore. Uh, he's a candidate for state auditor, but he is a uh, art theft and security expert. Anthony, um, really fascinating conversation today. I appreciate you joining me. I got to take these breaks to, to pay the bills, unfortunately. But before I let you go, um, where can people go to uh, learn more about your work and uh, purchase your books? And what are the names of your books for people who might want to um, read about the, the, the work that you've done and the, the, the books that you've written?
2: Thanks, Marcus. My website is just my name, anthonyamore.com. My last name's is A-M-O-R-E. So anthonyamore.com. My books, uh, Stealing Rembrandt's, uh, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, which is the most recent, and The Art of the Con, which deals with fakes and forgeries, they're all uh, there. My books are all available at any bookstore but Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, of course. And um, I, I hope you enjoy them. I'm proud of them.
1: Anthony Morey, thanks so much for coming on. Always a fascinating conversation. Look forward to more uh, in the future. Thank you, Marcus. Anytime. That was Anthony Morey, a really fascinating guy and really fascinating stories. Um, I, uh, I appreciate having him. Uh, I appreciate having him on. He was a great guest when we had him on as a state auditor candidate, and um, you know, just in his professional capacity now. Uh, really cool stuff, uh, makes for great conversation. So, uh, 508-996-0500. Uh, I'm here till 10. I'm going to take my first break of, of a few throughout the, uh, throughout the evening, but this is South Coast tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. Thanks so much for joining me show on marcus farrow 508-996-0500 i oh uh, five hundred. I'll just getting some messages you can message me on the wbsm app chat or you can call in at 508-996-0500 uh got a few messages on anthony interesting guy uh definitely have him back on soon absolutely well I, I could i could do a whole show with anthony honestly if he if he had the time uh because he does have a lot of interesting stuff to say you will obviously remember him as a candidate for state auditor uh during that and i always i i had i'd written about that during the primary phases the most competitive statewide election uh, it Was um, Anthony Morey, the Republican? Uh, he was the only guy that carried the endorsement of Charlie Baker, actually. And it was the it was the closest race, but it was a it was a bad it was a bad year for Republicans. Uh, Dinah DeZaglia and Chris Dempsey uh, were on the primary side uh, for Democrats, our uh, Democrat side for the primary. Uh, DeZaglia won uh, the primary, and then she won- uh, ended up winning the general, but. Uh, she's state senator for Methuen. Now she just got formally sworn in, I believe, on the 18th uh, at uh, at Methuen High School. I do like the I, I I like Diana too. She was a great friend of the show, and I think will continue to be a great friend of the show uh, going forward. Um, and uh, I am interested. You know, he talked about some of the things he he hopes she does. One of the things she said she was going to do is um, audit the legislature, which is going to be quite a thing. Uh, it'll be a, That will that will definitely be a, a long and extensive uh, legal battle. So looking forward to that. But de- thanks so much, uh, Anthony, for coming on. I appreciate it. Go check out anthonymorey.com. You can see some of the books that he's written. A uh, really fascinating guy with some interesting experience. What he didn't talk about prior to his uh, career in um, at the Isabella Stewart Gardner, which is a really cool place. I haven't been since... I haven't been since, I think it was my sophomore year in college. I went, I took a, uh, I took a art history class, uh, and, uh, one of the, um, we took a couple uh, museum trips. One of them was to the uh, MFA, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and the other one was to the Isabella Stewart Gardner. Isabella Stewart, they're both cool places. The Isabella Stewart Gardner, of course, as Anthony said, just has uh, a really neat, unique history and style um, that I really enjoyed. Not, I'm hoping to co- uh, go back soon uh, up there uh, in Boston. So it was um, it's really cool. But what Anthony didn't tell, talk about uh, was prior to his time In art theft and security, he was a federal agent and he rebuilt the Logan Airport security after 9-11. I mean, that's really, (laughs) that's quite a task. And he was in charge of doing that. Um, So really cool stuff. I appreciate Anthony coming on. I got to take one more break. Well, I got to take two more breaks, but I got to take this break. I'll be right back. This is South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow.
0: 1420 WBSM, where freedom of speech lives. One's on the left, left, the other on the right. But they're both ready to call it right down the middle. More of Marcus and Chris on South Coast tonight, here on WBSM. She looked at me and this is what she said. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't go.
1: Welcome back welcome back to south coast tonight i'm marcus farrow happy friday 508-996-0500 is how you can join me for the evening we're also taking your messages on the wbsm app chat again that was anthony amore who is candidate for state auditor republican candidate for state auditor uh and uh, a world rena- i should have asked him if he was going to run for office again i forgot to um but uh world-renowned art theft and uh, security expert, written um, three books on uh, on art theft and uh, is the director of security to Isabella Stewart Gardner. We were talking about Brian Walsh's, um, uh, suspected murderer, Brian Walsh's uh, brief career as an art fraudster and uh, selling fake Warhols. Really interesting conversation. If you missed any of it, good news. We have a podcast and it'll be up sometime tonight hopefully within the eight o'clock hour i can put it up but you should listen to it after 10 o'clock because i'll be here till 10 nine six zero five hundred. one of the other interesting things aside from uh, um you know the the conversation on um uh brian walsh was uh his his um very direct comments on the ongoing turmoil in the mass gop you know jess machado has been covering this uh very well i'm going to be on with uh Just tomorrow, we're going to talk about Ash Street, actually. But um, uh, the the ongoing turmoil in the Mass GOP, saying we do need better leadership. I believe Jim Lyons during the campaign was very not nice to Anthony Amore. uh, Didn't put him on the candidates page. Didn't put him on the candidates page uh, during the during the election. Um, I believe. There was some talk about him running, them running a write-in candidate to basically try to sabotage uh, Anthony. Um, So, and I think he's, you know, I think he's right in something that Howie Carr has been talking about a lot. Jess has been talking about a lot. They just don't have an infrastructure that's built to win elections. And uh, the Republican Party in Massachusetts has never been weaker, uh, not in my lifetime at least. Uh, And not in probably a lot of your lifetimes. So, Uh, We'll see that unfold. That election is is January 31st for the new mass GOP chair. And a lot of people seem to be supporting uh, Amy Carnivalli, who I believe was on Jess's show and I I think made her announcement here on Howie Carr's show. So WBSM uh, has been the um, has been the leading uh, the leading outlet in the Commonwealth, really, on that uh, on that story. And that's due to the great work of of Howie and uh, and and Jess, uh, who's in my old slot on Saturdays from one to four. Um, so I like that slot. I like that slot. I could have kept it, but, you know, it seems like you can keep it if you want it. I'm like, no, (laughs) this is, this is plenty. I'm glad because Jess is doing such a great job and, uh, and, and, uh, really, um, making a huge impact. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy here with you guys at night, uh, five nights a week from seven to 10. And uh, we're going to talk about the local stuff. You know, we're going to talk about the Morad pay raises. She was on today talking a little bit more about that with Tim. I'm glad Tim's kept that segment going um, uh, on Fridays with the city council president. Shane Burgos was on, too, and gave some commentary on it. So we'll talk about that more. Talk about their comments on, uh, their comments on the Ash Street Jail and plus some other goings on here in Massachusetts. Um, so uh, really excited for that. So stay tuned. Uh, 508-996-0500 is he- how you can join me this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. I, uh, I'm going to take this break. The WBSM app is... Tonight, I'm Marcus Farrow. I'm here with you till 10 o'clock this evening. We're going to talk about, um, uh, Council Bergo and Morad's appearance on, on Tim Weisberg's show. I think some in- interesting comments on the Ash Street Jail, on, um, on the, uh, on the pay raises, So, uh, you know, Mitchell's comments on the pay raises, and uh, we'll we'll definitely talk more about that. We'll be taking your calls to 508-996-0500. That's how you can join me uh, this evening. Uh, I'm going to have the podcast uploaded with that great interview with Anthony Amore, one of my favorite guests, honestly. He's just a great guest uh, because he has a lot of interesting stuff to say. I am looking forward, you know, now that um, all the statewide candidates have, uh, have been sworn in and all of that I'm, uh, are now statewide constitutional office holders. I'm looking forward to talking with them more. I think we've established a great rapport with them here on South Coast tonight, uh, like uh, Auditor Zaglio, Attorney General Campbell, and uh, and the like. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing those, co- those conversations. They said they would be back uh, after they got elected. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. So 508-996-0500. Is how you can uh, is how you can join me uh, this evening. Again, we're carrying uh, that momentum into the eight o'clock hour that we just built up with that great interview and talking about uh, some of the local stuff that's been going on here uh, in southeastern in southeastern Massachusetts. So uh, I'm really interested in hearing what uh, what you all have to say at 508-996-0500, that's how you can join me uh this evening or you can message on the wbsm app chat so stay tuned